let's get into tonight's material. Tonight uh, is going to be just a bit of a refresher, things that um, should be familiar to you, uh, but we're aiming to put all of this presuppositional apologetic content into practical use. We don't want this just to be thoughts that you somehow grasped and then lost, you know, as we, as more time passed. Uh, we want you to put this into, into use in your life. And I want to start, I'm, I'm going to have, basically, if you want to put down an outline in your notes, if you're taking notes, I want to start by, number one, setting apologetics in its biblical, on its biblical theological foundation. So you could write down foundation, biblical theological foundation. So I want to set a foundation, set apologetics within a, on a foundation. And then number two, I want to frame apologetics within its evangelistic context. And then remind you a bit about the method itself. And what I mean by that is I just, I want you to understand that we are not going out to try to win debates with unbelievers with our all of our apologetic uh, skill and acumen. We, we, are, we are answering objections when it comes up in an evangelistic framework. <clears throat> so I want you to think evangelistically, gospel first, and as you get into gospel conversations, oh, well, here's, I'm ready to make a defense. I've been prepared to do that. Okay? So that's how I want you to think. So number one, foundation. Number two, context, evangelistic context. And number three, uh, toward the end, which is that handout for you is a bit premature. I was hoping to hand that out later. So if that's in your hand, and you're looking at it, just put it to the side. OK, don't look at that because we may not actually I'll try to get to it. We may not get to it. But that I just want to give you some perspective on different worldviews. And I think that outline and that handout uh, helps you to do that to where you'll be able to, with, with more familiarity, more study, and then more interaction with unbelievers, you'll be able to slot people into different categories and have a very good, without reading all the books on all the different issues and all the different apologetic uh, issues, you'll be able to slot people in pretty well. So we'll talk about some of that, okay? Hopefully we'll get to that at the end. Let's, let's start with the biblical theological foundation for our apologetics. And I want to talk about this broadly first. There are um, a host of scriptures that inform our apologetics and evangelism. And really, you could say the entire Bible is our foundation. Because the more you read the scripture, the more it renews your mind, the more it transforms your life and your thinking, and causes you to have a completely, causes you to have God's worldview. So that's what you want to, you want to continue taking God's word into you. And as you do that, that sets a foundation. Every part of the scripture then becomes, you know, at your disposal and useful to you. I, I've been surprised on what texts, as I get into a conversation with an unbeliever, what texts can come to mind and all of a sudden become a springboard and an opportunity for the gospel. So the whole scripture. Start with Genesis 1 to 2. That establishes a Christian cosmology, uh, which is, as we've said before, part of our metaphysics. It's the Christian view of reality. That all starts in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, from those chapters, we develop a very robust understanding of theology proper. We as men did that in the STM class, talked about Genesis 1 and 2 and what we learn about God from that. 
Uh, he is the source of all being. He is absolutely self-sufficient. He's a, a, a personal God. He's a, a, a God who communicates and commands and directs. He's a, a God who disciples and trains. He did that right there in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, he is the creator. He is the lawgiver. That all comes from those first chapters. Genesis, that's why any Christian that teaches you to set aside the first chapters of Genesis and interpret it um, you know, you know, as a as a myth or or something like that. Um, that is, they're basically completely undermining the gospel when they do that. They don't realize it, some of them, but they are. Genesis three uh, continues to un- inform our view of reality because Genesis three reveals, of course, how sin came into the world. Uh, it is the original pattern of self-deception, and that same pattern of self-deception is the self-deception that exists and functions and operates right now within every single unbeliever. That is how they are deceived. That is the pattern of their deception. You understand that in Genesis 3? You understand every unbeliever. So all the patterns of sin that are specific to men as men, patterns of sin that are specific to women as women, comes right out of Genesis 3. Comes right out of there. Genesis also establishes a a covenantal framework for understanding God's dealings with mankind. Uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy reveal the law of God, uh, which is the standard for all of our ethical behavior. Again, that's part of our worldview. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Metaphysics, view of reality. All reality coming out of Genesis 1 and 2, all of Genesis. Uh, Epistemology, all of our knowledge is coming through the Word of God. We're seeing that revealed through His law. But then also, um, you know, be ye holy for I am holy. So it's His character and His holiness that sets the standard for our behavior. So we have a Christian view of ethics. Those are the three parts of any worldview. comes right out of the Scripture, the Old Testament. Um, all that's summarized in the Ten Commandments, the standards of ethical behavior. You have Exodus and Leviticus also acknowledging that we will not keep the law and then providing atonement for us, of uh, providing a way back to God so our sin can be covered and people can still have uh, an approach to God to worship him. That all comes out of Exodus and Leviticus. There's a redemptive framework that uh, shows God's heart for redemption uh, and to see, it helps us to see what's required to come near to God, that is blood atonement. Um, the Psalms, the prophets, all the historical writings, they all point back to uh, the law. Um, pointing, they also point us forward to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. Um, we see all that in the Old Testament clearly. Then the Gospels come in, this, this, sh- this shattering the heavens with this brilliant light of truth as the Gospels reveal the incarnation, the historical reality of, of Christ's birth and life and death and resurrection, his uh, continued bodily life and existence as he ascended into heaven and is interceding for all of us at the Father's right hand. New Testament epistles continue by expounding the doctrine of Christ, interpreting the meaning of his life, death, and resurrection, tell us all about his continued ministry in and through the church, and then the revelation of Christ, Uh, given to the Apostle John, it tells us how the whole thing ends. So we see how things began, what happened to cause everything to go wrong, uh, what God has done to fix everything, and where everything is headed. That's that's a worldview. That's exactly what the Bible reveals from cover to cover. This comprehensive worldview. And we as Christians 
We teach that to unbelievers. We defend that before unbelievers. It's a comprehensive system. We do not sacrifice any part of it. We don't apologize for any part of it. We, uh, we embrace it all, believe it all, and proclaim it all. That's what we do. So, we have uh, received from God a comprehensive worldview in the Bible. It's a divine view, a revealed view of reality, knowledge, and ethics. As we said in philosophical terms, that's Christian metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. So, um, that's a big picture view of the biblical uh, foundation. Within scripture, informing our apologetics is, uh, are a number of passages that inform our task, and I'll just list a number of them very, very quickly. You know these. Uh, we've been talking about them, and there are a whole lot more, too. We talked about Psalm uh, 14 and 53. Both of them are, are uh, repeating one another. The fool says in his heart there is no God. That's very important to our apologetics. Uh, Acts 17, looking at Paul, interacting with the, uh, the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill. We've got 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that, that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10. We're to be on the lookout, 2 Corinthians 11, 4. For anyone in our midst, this is especially important in that last part of your outline about the, the Christian counterfeits, non-Christian counterfeits of Christianity, uh, the, all those worldviews. If anyone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus, other than the one the apostles proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, uh, which is in the historic stream of Christianity, we all receive the same spirit in the church, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, that's false religion. That's a Christian counterfeit that we need to be on our, on our, on our guard against. Of course, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, you have a gentleness and reverence, keeping good conscience, all the rest. Uh, Proverbs 26.4 and 5, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Uh, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, we can go, as I said, on and on with, uh, with scripture after scripture that informs our task as apologists and evangelists, but that is enough to demonstrate that we stand on a very firm foundation of truth when we're talking to unbelievers. We also, um, in addition to what we learn in the scripture, it's important that we are students of theology as well. Uh, Bible doctrine, that is taking all those different, so like anything the Bible says about Christ, putting them all together and saying, okay, what's a comprehensive understanding of Christ? That's called Christology, the study of Christ. Um, everything the Bible teaches about sin, uh, that's called homardiology, from the, the Greek word for, um, uh, for homartano, to sin. So all these different ologies, these are all Bible doctrines, and we want to learn what we can about these Bible doctrines, and then we want to see how all those Bible doctrines relate and comport with one another, and that is what you find in a comprehensive systematic theology. So we want to read at the doctrinal level, we want to read at the systematic level and learn on those levels. 
So we need to recognize the help that we've received from God through gifted men in the church and church history. Uh, the best interpretations of Scripture through the history of the church and is revealed in a historic stream of, of Christian faithfulness and fidelity to the truth. So when we um, are well-informed theologically, doctrinally, when we, are, when we know how to systematically make connections between truths of Scripture, we will be the better for it. We'll be stronger, uh, wiser, um, more articulate, and a much more useful instrument, uh, instrument in the Master's hands when we, when we study. So, go back to the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church, the early church. Um, study the theology of the Protestant Reformation, all summarizing those, those five solas. Um, go back to the theology of the canons of Dort, what's known, also known as the doctrines of grace. Gary Odie and uh, Lee Barton are teaching that on Sunday mornings as a Sunday school class. Go to Puritan theology. Read Puritan theology, uh, to see Puritan preaching, pastoral practice. That is a time in Protestantism that probably reached its high water mark, um, the Puritan era. More recently, you can look at the works of men like R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries online. You can look at John MacArthur, men of like mind, you know, guys sharing the platform with those kinds of guys. Birds of a feather, right? You want to you wanna look and see what they're writing. So as we study all those things, we're going to become more sound in the faith. We're going to see um, all of this congealing and coming together, uh, becoming confident in the truth. And even though, as I think I said earlier, it, it's often imperceptible to us, but God is, through all of this saturation in Scripture, through all the doctrinal study, the theological study, understanding where we fall in the historic stream of Christian truth, um, God is developing, through all of that, exposure to his word. He's developing within us a set of believing presuppositions. We are starting to develop within ourselves assumptions about the world the way it is. We develop assumptions about the view of reality, about where knowledge comes from, about how we know what we know, uh, about where false knowledge comes from. We develop a, a set of assumptions about ethical behavior, moral behavior. Um, all that starts to become almost second nature to us. It's just as plain as, I don't know, what's plain? <laughs> the nose on my face. Um, but it becomes, it becomes plain. <laughs> it, becomes, uh, it becomes assumed. And that's why it's called a presupposition. It's what we presuppose to be true. And sometimes we're just not even aware of it until we start asking questions and get into dialogue. And you'll find how quickly as you get into a gospel conversation, those gospel presuppositions confront and expose false, unbelieving presuppositions. And that's where we're into our presuppositional apologetic. Okay? Here's, um, here are some of the presuppositions that we hold. Okay? Any, any questions so far on anything I've said? You all good? I know, I know I'm lecturing a little bit here. Um, okay. So with, with no questions, I'll press on. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and by the way, there's some really fun stuff coming uh, just a little bit later. Um, there, I've, I've, I found this article. This is like a uh, kind of a case in point, kind of a, a way that we can practice doing some of this apologetics. A new generation of LA, LA, Los Angeles Satanists finds community in blasphemous times. 
Isn't that a heartwarming story? <laughs> and you got this, uh, you ever see the Adams Family? This is a new version of Gomez and, and Morticia here in the front, dressed in their little garb. Anyway, we'll get into that a little later. So I'm just trying to give you a little light at the end of the tunnel. Black light, but... <laughs> So here's some presuppositions that we hold, um, which become for us starting points in our gospel conversations. Um, there, we start with this. There is a God, there's the God of the Bible, and he stands over and above all things with absolute authority, as revealed in Scripture. We believe that God has spoken presuppositional truth in the Bible, propositional truth in the Bible. Uh, the Bible requires normal, literal interpretation. Uh, Van Til says this about a starting point, that we take what the Bible says about God and his relation to the universe as unquestionably true on its own authority. All right? So there's propositional truth in Scripture. We trust it. We believe it. We know that God is absolutely the authority. We believe as a presupposition that God's decree controls all things. That is another way of saying God is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign. He is in control. Nothing is outside of his control. Not one molecule is an errant stray molecule in his universe. Van Til says God exists apart from, above the world, and controls whatever takes place in the world. Do not shy away in a conversation from that truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Don't apologize for him. He can handle his own fight, all right? You just assert what he says. Just say it as he said it. The Bible teaches us that God created the world out of nothing. This is another presupposition we have. There was, there was no material universe God spoken into existence, okay? That's what we believe. Van Til says several things about Christian cosmology that are starting points for him and presuppositions. Everything in the creation, this is what this is his quote, everything in the creation displays the fact that it is controlled by God. Everything. The objective evidence of God's existence and control is clear and inescapable in the universe. If a man is self-conscious at all, he is also God-conscious. You remember where that comes from? Romans 2, right? Where it says, the law of God is written on every heart. And man, God has given man a conscience, which either accuses him or excuses him based on that law that God has given him. Every single man, if he is self-conscious at all, he's also God-conscious. Nobody can tell you, well, I don't know anything about God. Yeah, maybe they weren't raised in a church. But they reveal all the time that they know him. They know him, and in Romans 1.18 says they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So they know. They're just suppressing it. Another presupposition we hold, sin has entered into the world and it's corrupted God's creation. That is, it corrupts man's reason, corrupts his feelings, corrupts his desires, his affections, his emotions, can, can corrupts his ability to, to discern, to process, to reason. Christ has, here's another presupposition, Christ has provided salvation on the cross of Calvary. He's provided salvation. And that salvation that he's provided, it's exclusively through him, it's only through him, it's through blood atonement, it's through substitution, substitutionary atonement. 
And that's the only way man will be saved. That's the only man, way man can be reconciled to God. The whole duty of man, another presupposition, the whole duty of man is to fear God and enjoy him forever. That's that Westminster uh, Catechism question. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to enjoy God, uh, to um, glorify God and to know, what is it, know God and enjoy? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, thank you. I should know that. So, <laughs> worship, <laughs> I need to do a little more reading. Um, so worship God, honor him, give thanks. That's all involved in the whole duty of man. That's what we're here for. That's what we're created for. And then from those last three points, <clears throat> Van Til says this, God has clearly revealed himself both in nature and in the scripture. And, therefore, man has no excuse for not accepting this clear revelation. God has revealed himself in nature, as Romans 1 says. He's revealed himself in what's been made so that men are without excuse. What's revealed in nature is enough to um, inform the conscience, and it's enough to condemn men, but it's not enough to save them. In order to save them, just like Psalm 19, it has the first section there is all on the natural or the, the general revelation of God. Second part is all on the special revelation of God, which is his revealed word. So when we talk to people, we ought to expect that they must bow the knee to Christ. We shouldn't go into an, a, a conversation with people apologetically, well, I'm really sorry, I don't want to trouble you. No, we come as ambassadors. We come proclaiming. We come as heralds. And we represent a king who is mighty and who is going to judge the earth. So we need to come uh, in with that mindset. So armed with this distinctively Christian worldview, so Christian metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, we not only have an incredibly powerful system of truth, but we have the only system of truth. You need to understand that. The Christian worldview cannot be defeated. Many have tried to smash against that truth, but uh, they come away bruised because the truth remains, the church remains, the gospel continues to save and sanctify. So let that encourage you that we are on the winning side and uh, the truth will always prevail. So armed with our biblical worldview, armed with our theology from the scripture, we're going to apply this presuppositional method and set it within an evangel evangelistic framework. We're always going to be aware of the critique that the gospel brings to the singular non-Christian worldview. The gospel is going to rub up against and irritate and provoke an unbeliever in these three areas. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And it's going to, where do you think the, the, the deepest irritation is going to come as you talk to people about the gospel and lay the claims of the gospel on them? Do you think it's going to come in their view of reality, in their view of where knowledge comes from, and, or knowledge, or in ethics and behavior? Ethics and behavior. Ethics and behavior. So, should we, um, should we speak clearly about sin? Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, right? We really have to, if we're going to be faithful. The gospel is going to irritate and that's a good thing, because the irritation means there's some feeling left. That's good. That's good. Okay, so we've established a biblical theological foundation. Again, that's just review. That's just a very, very general, broad overview. Let's frame what we're doing within an evangelistic framework. So this means we're going to, to talk about an evangelistic framework. We've got a foundation. Now we've got a framework here we're building within. This means we're going to start with an evangelistic approach. Okay? We want to think gospel first. We want to think about 
You know, you, never, you don't need to go in thinking with guns blazing, I'm going to defend the faith, defend the faith, defend the faith, attack, argue, 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 debate, debate, debate. You don't, if you go in like that, you're just going to send people away, okay? You want to go in first with gospel. You never know what the Holy Spirit's been doing in a life before you ever got there. So you want to talk to them about the gospel. We're going to start with an evangelistic approach. So, so this is gospel. We want, to, we want to make sure and lead out with the gospel. And that's where we were, why we were going through that video series, uh, The Way of the Master stuff. It's really, really helpful. That's really good framework to get you into gospel conversations. So make sure, as we think about an evangelistic approach, make sure you know what you believe. Clarify all your own presuppositions. Make sure that they're biblical. Clarify the gospel. Make sure you can articulate the gospel accurately, well, clearly. Practice it. Pra get a buddy. Get a, a sister. And just practice sharing the gospel and see how it comes across. Just practice verbalizing it, okay? Do that. That's really, really helpful. Second thing, be sure you know and understand the, the unbelieving mind, okay? Study, study the unbeliever a bit. Remember where you were when you were an unbeliever and bring that into your thinking. You want to clarify uh, an unbeliever's presuppositions. Make sure you're thinking biblically about an unbeliever. Let me give you a true or false. Here's a true or false statement. Give me, give me the, tr I'll ask for true. We'll do show of hands and then I'll ask for false. Okay. There is a difference between what the unbeliever tells us he knows and believes and what he actually knows and believes. True? True. False. Ah, oh, you guys are you guys are awesome. <laughs> Paul's clear about this in Romans one. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know truth. They just hold it down. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So when an unbeliever says, I know nothing about your God, are you gonna take his word for it? Or are you gonna take God's word for it? We're gonna take God's word for it. God's word says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they knew him. They know him. There is, as Calvin put it, a sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine in every single human being. If they are self-conscious, as Van Til said, they're God-conscious. They know him. They just don't know him redemptively. They don't know him savingly. That's what you're there for. So the unbeliever professes to have a certain set of beliefs. He professes to have a certain set of convictions about reality and knowledge and ethics. But the Bible tells us that he is assuming the Christian worldview. He's assuming in order to have his worldview or his made-up worldview, he has to assume uh, portions and pieces from the Christian worldview, its view of reality and knowledge and ethics. So we need to discern in the unbeliever between what he professes and how he actually thinks. That is what the Bible tells us he thinks. It's the difference between what he suppresses and what he professes, okay? Most unbelievers, your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving family member or friend, they're utterly unaware, aren't they, of their, of their actual presuppositions, all their beliefs about reality, knowledge, and ethics. It's not just, they're, they're not just unaware of what they're suppressing, though that's true. They're also even fuzzy about what they're professing. 
They don't even have a clear understanding. And you start talking about metaphysics and all that, their eyes roll back in the back of their head. They have no idea what you're talking about. So you're not going to use that kind of language, a philosophical language. You're going to talk about, what do you, what do you think about reality? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Is, what do you think about God? Just ask questions. Let them start talking. Clarify their, their thinking. <clears throat> so our job is going to be to help the unbeliever discern, um, not only discern contradictions in his world, but worldview, but discern his worldview. We need to help him talk, okay? Help her talk. So we need to help him see the contradictions between their professed set of beliefs and expose them to the suppressed set of beliefs so they can become more aware how they're suppressing the truth that they know. Okay, so know what you believe, understand the gospel, articulate it, then also know and understand the unbelieving mind. Know who you're talking to. Know your audience. Third thing, we need to go out there and do it. Okay, so it's not enough to do all our study and reading and everything. We need to go out there and talk to people. Get out there in conversations, okay? Take the gospel, share the gospel with unbelievers. This is a very likely going to kick off an apologetic discussion. But make sure you get the gospel Right first, try to lead out with the gospel if you can. You can revisit any apologetic challenges that come up in the conversation. Uh, you can come back to those. Hey, that's a really good point. Not sure about that, but what do you think is going to happen when you die and you stand before God to give an account for your sins against him on Judgment Day? <laughs> so you, you've said, yes, I'm going to get to that. I'll get to that later. And be honest and come back and get to it later. So bring back his objection to him. Say, hey, I was studying about that thing you brought up about, you know, contradictions in the Bible. It's a great question. And here's what I discovered, you know. So come back to him. But in the moment, don't let, oh, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. See you tomorrow. You know, don't do that. Just say, that's a really good question. But uh, have you ever thought about this question? You know, let me pose one to you. <coughs> So then forth, as I'm saying, engage in the apologetic discussion. This is out of obedience to Christ, 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready. And out of love for this person, as I'm saying, you don't need to know it all in the moment. Um, but be sure to respect and love the person enough to help them through uh, some of those objections. This is going to bring us now to, again, setting this within an evangelistic framework. Talk first about being gospel-focused, uh, evangelistic. Second thing, this brings us to our apologetic defense, okay? Always be ready to make the apologetic defense. And here's a way uh, to engage with any unbeliever. Here's a way to engage with any unbeliever when you make an apologetic defense. So, Start by answering some, not all, maybe one or two, of the what Greg Bonson calls the intellectual debris uh, that is cluttering up their mind, their challenges, um, such as, well, I, you know, I, how can the Bible be God's word? It's written by a bunch of fallible men. You know, how can you take, you know, the Bible's kind of like the telephone game. You know, you, you pass one thing on, then it goes, you know, what are all those societies, oral communication? You know, they pass things on, you pass things on, and then there's a, a diminishment in the message, and then by the time you get to the end of it, how do you know you got what God said? You know, so all those kinds of things that they raise, pick one or two. You know, help them. Try to clear away some of that intellectual debris. I heard Matt Damon once, uh, he was scorning, scoffing Christians, and he's like, <laughs> anybody that would believe that men walk the earth with dinosaurs, how can they be trusted with a political vote, you know? 
that kind of thing. That's that's one of those, that's debris. When you do when you do your homework and you give some evidence, it's going to expose the ad hominem uh, nature of their attack against you. But they've just thrown something out there. They haven't studied this. They haven't gone into great depth. It's often going to expose you know, their, their lazy thinking as you do your homework, and they haven't done any. Okay, So try to, try to clear away a little bit of the intellectual debris. And then, in your apologetic defense, number two, do a comparison of worldviews. So show the unbeliever um, the difference between your worldview and their worldview. So they're going to raise an objection, and you can say, you know, I can see from your uh, worldview, which is an, has an anti-supernatural bias, why you would say that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because you reject miracles out of hand. I understand that from your worldview. Um, it'll be interesting to test where you come up with that anti-supernatural bias because you can't possibly know for certain that there are no miracles. That can't be tested or observed or anything else. That's why they're miracles. They're not common. Uh, they're not something you can test. I am a supernaturalist. I believe in the word of God. I believe that axe heads float. I believe that, that God spoke through a donkey uh, to Balaam. I believe that God raised his son from the dead. All those are miraculous by nature. Supernatural, yes. But if we start with God, with the God of the Bible, all of that makes sense. If we start from your materialistic worldview that says nothing exists except atoms, of course, none of that makes sense. But you got some real problems if we're nothing but atoms. And then we go on and talk about the problem with materialism, naturalistic materialism. Okay? So we're going to do a comparison of worldviews. You're going to educate the unbeliever about what he believes, where his presuppositions come from. In, in Bonson's terminology, you need to help them become more epistemologically self-conscious. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> so you're going to help them see where their views are coming from. You're going to see, help them see where their knowledge is coming from. And they're coming from the presuppositions that are hidden beneath their conscious thought. We realize that given their worldview, none of our evidences about the resurrection and empty tomb and all that stuff are going to make sense to them. But given our worldview, all those evidences are incredibly confirmatory about the Christian worldview. So we're going to help them see the difference in perspective even before doing any confrontation or internal critique. Number three, so we're going to first be, um, answer some of the intellectual debris, clear that away. We're going to do a comparison of worldviews and just kind of raise that to the surface and say, here's your worldview, here's my worldview, here's the difference, okay? Now we're going to show that nothing makes sense to the unbeliever's worldview. Okay? This is where we start to create that what we call that dialectical tension, that logical tension in their thinking to see, wait a minute, if I believe that all that can be known is known only by observation, that is empiricism, radical empiricism, and only the scientific method is valid for telling us anything about the world or knowledge, well, how do I verify that statement I just made? By observation? You can't put that under a microscope in a petri dish. How did they come up with that proposition, that truth claim, that assertion? Not by observation. That comes from something else. 
So we want to help to raise those tensions in their thinking about their own worldview that it really does not comport. It's inconsistent. It's contradictory, self-contradictory, which is a fatal flaw to any worldview. So take one thing at a time. Whether you're talking about reality, knowledge, or ethics, anything within those categories, take one thing at a time. Take something that interests both of you. Watching uh, movies, going to a, a theater, reading books, uh, listening to music. Um, take music, for example. In a chance world, music would be impossible. If this is a purely a chance world, music would be impossible, wouldn't it? Because music relies on order and unity and harmony. It's actually, I think, mathematical in nature, music is, okay? In a chance world, though, there is no expectation of order. There's no expectation that one thing should lead to another, or unity should exist, or harmony should exist. Why should one note follow after another in a world of random chance? Why do notes harmonize? How do you write music in a chance, random world? Or how do you evaluate good music versus bad music in a chance, random world? To write, to evaluate, to appreciate, even to listen to music, to find consensus about music quality and beauty. And we do this all the time. Non-believers do this all the time. They live in this world. All this is consistent with a Christian worldview because we have a God of unity and order and harmony. But in a non-Christian worldview of random chance, you have no expectation of this. It's not, con it's not consistent. Music does not flow naturally out of that worldview. In fact, it's totally contradictory. Um, totally consistent with the Christian worldview. And you do this with raising children, talking about retirement, talking about mechanics in your car, talking about shopping choices, doctor visits, uh, expectations of your medication to work or not work, uh, how to spend, spend downtime, how to spend money, anything. You can take any topic and use that as an avenue for comparison and critique of worldviews. Because in an unbeliever's worldview, in any non-Christian worldview, nothing makes sense. Nothing follows logically from one thing to another. Only Christianity makes sense of the world. I like um, Greg Bonson used parenting as an example. He says, what is maybe a most basic belief in all parenting? Um, you know, what would you, what would you say? What's the most basic belief? What's a fundamental belief of all parents? I'm the adult. You're the child. Okay, authority. <laughs> Lee is a, uh, an appeal to the stick. <laughs> I'm the parent. You're the child. You do what I say. Okay. So even more fundamental than that. Why do you use the authority? For their own good. For their own good. Okay. So there's a basic assumption in parenting, right? That we want to do what's kind, nice, good for our children. Why? Well, why should we? In a chance random universe, if um, myself is all that's important, that child is really getting in the way. <laughs> that child is not helping me attain my peace, my inner peace and happiness. It's really disrupting my inner peace and happiness sometimes, right? So we share that children, uh, this common view that all children and parents toward children ought to treat children nicely with kindness. Is that true given the non-Christian worldview? <clears throat> Not at all. 
Make the unbeliever prove how he comes to the necessary conclusion from his worldview that you have to be nice to kids. Why shouldn't you torture them for fun? Why shouldn't you send them out into traffic to play for a while? You know? What, why, why does it not make sense to, to do that in a non-Christian's worldview? They have to prove that. It's easy to do from a Christian worldview because all human beings are created in the image of God. Our children are created in the image of God. Um, sometimes in certain times of parenting, we feel like our children are created in a different image. Um, we want to blame it on Satan, but it's really in our image, right? Adam gave birth to children in his own image after his own likeness. Yeah, it's us in the fall. They're, they're coming out just like us, and that's the problem. But they're created in God's image, and so that all comes from a Christian worldview. And so we need to demonstrate to the unbeliever how in a Christian worldview everything in life makes sense, even being nice to kids. But in a non-Christian worldview, nothing makes sense, even being nice to kids, even being nice to animals, even being, even being let's take this one, uh, no matter what you believe about environmental issues, taking care and good stewardship of the planet, that's Christian. Make them prove from their worldview in a, in a world of random chance and nothing fits to Make them prove that we should care about any of that. They can't. Okay? So, finally, number four, and we're kind of doing this a little bit. You know, you're trying to basically raise, uh, raise tensions. You're trying to show nothing makes sense in an unbeliever's worldview, raising tensions. Number, number four, you're going to do an internal critique of the unbeliever's worldview and show its contradictions. Um, so, an example of this, Greg Bonson, he was always fond of using uh, the situation from the 1960s when he grew up, uh, in which people promoted sexual liberation, while at the same time vehemently opposing the Vietnam War. Can you see the tension there? Can you see that? We could update that illustration by using uh, the example of today's continued promotion of erotic freedom, sexual, you know, no restraint, while opposing President Trump. Pick something like that that'll raise um, blood pressures, you know, that's a good one. <laughs> so on the one hand, unbelievers insist on a moral relativism to support their pursuit of sexual freedom. They don't want any standards that tells them this is how they must behave sexually, right? On the other hand, they insist on absolute standards to judge war, to judge the presidency, to judge truth statements, fake news, all the rest. Do you see the contradiction in that? You have to see the contradiction in that. The unbeliever is acting in an inherently contradictory way. And you can raise these kind of illustrations and examples all over the place. All over the place. We can talk to today's secularists, materialists, empiricists who insist that we only know what we know by observation. That is what we see, what we hear, touch, taste, smell, observe, all of our sense perceptions. And then we ask them, hey, that proposition, as I already said, that proposition, we only know what we know through our five senses. Did we learn that through our five senses too? That's a conflict. That's a tension uh, due to the multitude of contradictions that are inherent in their worldview. Yeah, Lee. Um, what you're describing a lot of this is a uh, classic postmodern uh, worldview. And we know that you can't consistently hold a postmodern worldview where two truths have equal um, 
they're equally true, even though they're totally contradictory. Right. But somehow people don't care about that anymore. How do we address that? Um, so let's, we'll, we'll come back to that. Right. Um, because because we, do need to, we do need to come back to that. But let me, let me just say this to scratch the itch a little bit. You have to raise the issue, and this goes back to the gospel, you have to raise the issue of accountability, of final judgment, that you're in danger before a holy God. And you're, the, the fact of your holding um, contradictory truths in total tension and the fact that you have embraced irrationality in your worldview yeah. is not okay. You're actually morally culpable for that. You are suppressing the truth that God has sent me here to deliver to you. And you're going to stand before him to answer for this conversation. I've had that happen a lot. You know, I've had it happen a lot. You know, people kind of, especially today, they're taught from a very young age in the school system, they're taught um, the truth is relative. They're, they are. They're just, that's just a, a going, I mean, they don't enter college anymore with that as an open question. College professors don't even see the need to challenge issues of absolute truth. They just assume it. So the one person, the Christian in the classroom who holds to absolute truth, they make a mockery of him and laugh at him and make him an example and stuff. But everybody in the classroom assumes, no, of course truth isn't absolute. It's relative. Nicholas faced this. Uh, Jesse faced this in the classroom. They're made fun of. But they, they can make fun of it. They can scorn it. They can be mockers. And there's a concern I have in this day and age that this is an evidence of the Romans 1 decline where people are handed over to debased thinking to where they, they can't even make sense of anything in them. So we just hope that among those, that some of them will be rattled a little bit. And of course, it's the Spirit of God who has to make that change and make, uh, make future accountability and coming judgment and standing before God, a holy God who's going to call all their sins to account. Um, he's, we, we, tr we trust and, and rely on the Spirit of God to do that work. We just need to say it. There are some other things, though, that I think, um, I, I think different approaches we can take. And I like to kind of work that out a little slower. But one of the ways would be also to, to just get into the world that they live in and how bleak, um, how empty it is, and just say, tell me the truth. Are you, are you truly finding yourself fulfilled and, and find, find your greatest significance in living in your mother's basement at 35 years old and playing video games and eating Doritos? Is that, is that really how you want to live your life? To go, or for a girl, to go from one relationship to another where a man uses and abuses you and then tells you it's your right to do what you want with your own body and how, how wonderful this is for your feminism and everything else. Mm -hmm. So raising those, those we, you know, I know this is a bad word in our circles, but those, you know, Rick Warren called them felt needs. Mm -hmm. Raising those felt needs and, and kind of pulling the scab off it a little bit and kind of pushing on that wound because they are all feeling it. They, they, they'll lie to you and tell you they're not feeling it. They feel really good. And maybe in their 20s that can be true. As you get into your 30s and 40s, all that sin that you sowed, it's going to come back to, you're going to reap all that. 
God will not be mocked. Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. So sometimes, you know, we face that young person and they, they snidely, arrogantly put it back in our face and scoff and laugh and walk off and play their video games and do their, their sexual things and all that. But when they come back to us in their 30s and 40s with a few, um, you know, kids in tow, spouse is gone, it's, life is wrecked, um, maybe their heart's broken, maybe they're ready. So sometimes I think we just need to wait, you know, let them stew in the juices for a while. Anyway, it's a great question. It's what we, you know, it's what we, that's the reality of what we face right there. So, um, let's see, where am I? Oh, yes. So we're going to demonstrate how the unbeliever's thinking is arbitrary. He's prejudiced, that is, he's biased. His thinking is filled with tensions, logical tensions, ethical tensions uh, about when it's, you know, when he lies and he shouldn't, and the things he knows he ought to do and doesn't, the things he uh, knows he ought not to do, but he does anyway. All those things, those are all tensions that are there. Um, how all of his thinking is fundamentally irrational. And this gives us four ways we're going to dismantle his worldview. We've talked about this before. This is just a very quick review. We're going to expose the unbeliever's ar arbitrariness. Arbitrary just means it's opinion-based. This is just opinion, okay? He asserts, as it, asserts it as if it's a fact, like, um, oh, we all know that the world evolved, you know, going macroevolution, simple to complex. That's how the We all know that. Really? Do you know that? So boil that down. You come to an arbitrary statement. Um, we're going to expose number two, his unargued philosophical biases, that is his prejudices. We're going to show how his thinking is prejudicial. So in our, in our day and age, the most common one is anti-supernaturalism. Uh, they, they deny miracles out of hand. They say that can't happen. They say that, though, and they assert that as just their own bias. They're just prejudiced against it, usually from growing up in, you know, just America. Um, we're going to provoke a dialectical tension within his worldview. That is to say, we're going to provoke a, a logical tension um, that these two things are self-contradictory self-contradictory to one another. A cannot be A and not A at the same time in the same relationship. So we're going to expose that. And then we're going to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. And that's just a fancy way of saying his worldview, his thinking, cannot explain the world as it is, okay? Uh, can't explain, can't give good reasons for why it is. Only the Christian worldview can. So all of that contrasts with the Christian worldview, which is not arbitrary, but it's consistently rational, and it's based on, like Lee said, I'm in charge, you know, authority. It's based on the authority of God. We, the parental authority comes from authority that is delegated to parents, but it's the authority of God. It points back to his authority. That's not arbitrariness. That's authority come from God's word. We're not being arbitrary. We're not, this is not our opinion. It's God's word. Um, it's rational. It's capable of being soundly reasoned. Number two, uh, contrast with the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview doesn't obfuscate or hide or disguise any of our biases or our presuppositions. Actually, we want to expose those. We want to say, hey, here's where I'm coming from. Um, we're transparent. We're eager for scrutiny. Um, Christian worldview is the only worldview where there's no dialectical tension at all. There's no logical contention, uh, tension because it's rationally consistent. 
It's ethics. It's epistemology. are all founded upon his view of reality, that God is pure being and he is the source of all being. And then number four, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that provides the preconditions of intelligibility. Um, so, let's see here. Apologetically, we've done our job. If we've cleared out the intellectual debris, if we've exposed and compared worldviews, if we've demonstrated that nothing uh, makes sense according to a non-Christian worldview, but everything makes sense according to a Christian worldview, and then then we, number four, go through that internal critique of their worldview. So our critique is going to expose inconsistency in their thinking. That is contradictions. Uh, it's going to expose arbitrariness in their worldview. That's based on mere opinion. Either of those, inconsistency or arbitrariness, is a fatal philosophical flaw. Once you've, once you've done all that, you've made your argument, you've given a defense for Christianity, um, you've done your job, okay? So if it ends there and they walk away and they're satisfied with irrationality, they're satisfied with inconsistency, they're satisfied with, um, uh, with arbitrariness, well, then you pray. You, know? mm -hmm. you go back to that accountability issue and say, listen, you're going to stand before God for this conversation, for this relationship. This is not an accident. God planned this. I'm his ambassador appealing to you be reconciled to God through Christ. Okay. All right. One final section for tonight, and this is where you can bring out those little handouts I gave you. Um, I want to give you uh, some perspective on the various different worldviews. There's that little handout there. So this is the third point for tonight, worldview perspective. Um, as is evident in the outline, there are not a... Uh, yeah, okay, I got one. Um, there are not... There's not an infinite variety of unbelief. I know sometimes when we think of unbelievers out there and all the different things they say and think and different viewpoints and everything, we kind of feel intimidated. Like, I don't know how to answer everything that's out there. Uh, yeah, you do, actually. <laughs> you actually do. With the Word of God and just getting, getting used to these conversations, you can answer absolutely anything. You have the Word of God at your disposal, and you can answer anything. And, and just that, that outline should show you that that really is pretty comprehensive of everything that is. Every worldview and unbelief out there, it's all, as I said before, it's one, it's one view. It's not God. It's not, the, not, not true theology. But it takes these various forms. So if you're talking with an unbeliever, you can start to ask questions that will help you to put this person into one of those categories that's on that form, on that sheet. Um, uh, you don't have to have read all the books on their religion. Some of that will help you, but you don't have to read it all. So you can generally know where they're coming from. Ask them then to fill in the blanks of their thinking, and then you be begin your, your uh, apologetic critique. So as you can see there, you have three different worldviews. Atheistic materialism. This is what we've been spending a lot of time talking about. It's the, it was the subject of Greg Bonson's debate with Gordon Stein. That's pretty thorough there. I, I probably won't rehash a lot of that, but um, I, I can't do better. But uh, atheistic materialism, that's common today. Dualistic idealism. This is... Um, uh, Platonic thought and believe it or not your run of the mill unbeliever today is kind of a dualist 
they, they really do hold to dualistic idealism, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And then there are non-Christian religions. So you basically have three worldviews. Atheistic materialism, that is, everything that exists is atoms or matter. All, all that exists is matter. Dualistic idealism, there's matter and there's, there's material and immaterial, both exist. And then non-Christian religions that take these different forms. So three kinds of non-Christian religions. Transcendent mysticism, imminent moralism. Transcendent means it goes up and above. You know, it's kind of mystical. Um, imminent moralism, it's imminent, it's near, it's what's right here in front of us. And then a biblical counterfeit. That's a, that's a third category of non-Christian religions. So you have under biblical counterfeit, then you have Unitarian counterfeits, polytheistic, polytheistic counterfeits, and then pseudo-Messianic uh, counterfeits. All those people you know that are trying to join that David Koresh cult and all that kind of stuff, right? Now, this is where I want to pull out this little... This fun little article with uh, Gomez and Morticia Adams on the front. Um, this is kind of an outlandish example from really uh, January 5th. That's two days ago. So today's headlines. Um, little, a quick internal critique of, of Satanism, or at least this version of Satanism, which is becoming evidently in vogue in L.A., who knew? You know, everything's in vogue in L.A. Now that Charlie Manson is dead um, and has met his, his dear friend, um, he, I guess they have something else to replace it here. Um, this is mixed in with the, the artsy L.A. scene. Um, they're into bands and there's, there's um, you know, educated people over at JPL that are a part of this stuff. There's... Uh, um, yeah, anyway, all kinds of stuff. And they're saying, they're, they're chanting as a group, Hail Satan, Hail Satan, Hail Satan, all that kind of stuff. It's all the stuff you read like back in the 80s. Remember when Neil T. Anderson and all that stuff, Bondage Breaker, we're all into that. So listen, listen to some of these quotes. I just highlighted a few quotes. I'm going to read them out, and then I want you to find the tension or the contradiction in this worldview, okay? Um... I believe this is Morticia here. Zachary and Alexandra, of course, Alexandra. You know, Alexandra James. It's probably not even a real name. It's probably something like Sue. Um, but Zachary and Alexandra James, they're of Twin Temple, and they're, they're a self-described satanic doo-wop group and active Satanists. That's, that's funny. Uh, so, so there's the dialectical tension right there. Um, all right, so... She says, what I'm trying to do is transform the witch from a figure of male fear and fantasy into a figure of female power and sexuality. For some women, it represents healing. For others, raw power. For others, the freedom to be unorthodox or to find their own spiritual spirituality outside of the family system. End quote. Interesting, because I hear some of that. Take out the, some of the overtly, you know, overtly satanic stuff. I hear some of that coming out of evangelicalism <laughs> about women empowerment and stuff. She says it's important for women to try to reclaim our images for ourselves. <clears throat> Down here, Zachary says, in these times, a lot of people do not uh, uh, want to not feel helpless. And Luther, uh, Luther, Lucifer was the original rebel angel. So he looks up to Lucifer as the rebel angel. We need to 
um, not feel helpless, but take our, our destiny in our hands like Lucifer did. I guess he hasn't read the Bible because it's not working out well, you know. So, um, LA's chapter of the Satanic Temple has a mission statement. Okay? It's a very evangelical mission statement right there. Promises to, quote, encourage benevolence and empathy among all people. Reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense and justice, and be directed by the human conscience to undertake noble pursuits guided by the individual will. End quote. In 2015, the temple held a ritual to demonize Saint Junipero Serra, who founded the brutal early Spanish missions in California. Isn't that interesting? Ruth Waits, I guess, is a magistra in the official LaVey, that is Anton LaVey, Church of Satan, uh, the LaVey-founded Church of Satan, whose mission is, quote, dedicated to the acceptance of man's true nature, that of a carnal beast living in a cosmos that is indifferent to our existence, end quote. Hmm. <coughs> carnal beast, accept that, embrace that, accept your true nature, Benevolent. But benevolently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow we still Finally. have angels, even yeah. though they're fallen ones. Yeah. Exactly. But it's not. Yeah. During, so here's a, during a ritual involving an anti-baptism of its coven mate, a young woman, was offered up in service to the goddess Lilith as an avenging angel for crimes against women. Quote, Alexandrus, uh, some of these men, like Harvey Weinstein, are finally being held accountable for their crimes. Alexandra yelled at the crowd, what do you think? Shall we burn him at the stake or we should, shall we drown him and see if he floats? And the crowd erupted in cheers for both. Not very benevolent. Okay. <laughs> hey, they're just holding him accountable for his crimes, Gary. I wonder if their favorite books are Children of the Children of Right. your carnal beast, so. Okay, so point out, you guys, come on, be a good apologist here and point out what is the, ten the tension. Man, there's so many tensions here in their worldview. Yes, Tammy. One of the first things that comes to mind, it's written by a couple sharing the last name. And she first says to get outside the family. Oh, my. Isn't that interesting? I did not, I did not notice that. That's a really good point. Good job, Tammy. She has Zachary's last name. Well, we don't know that for sure. Zachary could have taken her last name. <laughs> but then you would want to see Alexandra named first, Alexandra and Zachary James, right? But you're probably right. She's taken his last name, um, and, and she's trying to break free from the power structures and patriarchal structures of family. Um, and define her own reality. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. See, she cannot escape. She can't escape the world that she lives in. She she lives and moves and has her being in God's world. That's a good point. So they want no no authority to govern them. They're going to act benevolently, but in response to their carnal nature. So how that all works together, I'm not sure because you know a carnal nature is only self-seeking. It's not benevolent. Right. Can, right. Survival of the fittest. Can a beast act benevolently? Can a beast act benevolently? I try to tell the kids all the time that when that dog licks you, 
It's not acting benevolently. It just wants something. It's just being a beast. Uh, Josh and then Joe. There's just a lot of stuff in there, but the fact that Weinstein is essentially doing what they what what their demand like this is what he's just living up to what they say are their best the, the things that they want people to live up to. That's what he's doing, and then they're all angry about him with it. And and also uh, that whole list of all the of what their their mission statement is completely against everything that the devil stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so if they're if that's not the I mean where are they where's the devil at that they're, are they making up their own devil or because they're no, they have to borrow from the Bible to get Satan. Mm -hmm. But then it's like how Christians treat God or making up our God of our own image or making up a Satan of their own image. They're borrowing the initial fact that Satan exists from the Bible, and then they're deciding that he's something completely different than the rest of the Bible portrays him. Exactly. Okay, so Harvey Weinstein has embraced his inner beast. Mm -hmm. He's just doing what they're commending people should do. And now they want to condemn him for it? That's contradictory. You can't have it both ways. What about, um, what about the, the concept of holding anybody accountable at all? Aren't they only supposed to be accountable to their own conscience? Yeah. Isn't everything internal? Mm -hmm. Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, is what Anton LaVey said. Yes. Do what thou wilt. They're doing what thou wilt. Joe. I was going to say, uh, Harvey Weinstein should be their king. <laughs> should, he should be their crown prince. He should be their poster boy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Christy. But they're, they're also, so they're claiming that sort of rugged individualism and obey your own conscience, and then they're sacrificing and worshiping a goddess, or, you know, they, there's some worship going on there. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, they're acknowledging some higher transcendent reality outside themselves. Even though they say, I am all that is, they still offer this in this faux baptism thing that they do they offer this young girl up to uh lilith i don't know if you heard of lilith yeah but. she's yeah. she's supposed to be at the first life or something yeah. 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 no kidding how would you know that because my neighbor has that i grew up with when we were little kids she, when i saw her when she was like i was 19 and she was 18 she had a tattoo of this naked woman on her arm and i was like why would what you do is that? that? And she's like, well, that's Lilith. And I was like, who's Lilith? She's like, she's in the Bible. She's Adam's first wife. I was like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. <laughs> but that's the whole, but the whole like Lilith fair and everything. I know very little bit about it. It was in the nineties. It was a music thing. And it's all, it has, I don't know much, but I know it has to do with Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I am out of touch. It's very good. weird. I just was like, what Bible is that? It's not in my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> she was rejected because she wouldn't serve under Adam. And so they had to make Eve as one who was more subservient. Huh. That's, that's what they believe. Really? Huh. That's why she's there. Interesting. Okay. So she is the, she's like the, the, the first prototype of, of female power and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So we can go, guys, we can go on and on with, with stuff in this. I just, did you, did you find that really mentally challenging to see the strange contradictions and all that? No. No, the hard part is not to laugh. <laughs> you know, and that is important when you're talking to somebody not to break out in laughter. <laughs> um, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> but um, 
But is it, it is important to talk to them with a straight face because whatever, however ridiculous it is, they believe it, and and they they hold to it. They they are, in some sense, banking their reality and existence on it. It's really tragic. It is. It is tragic, and that's how you have to think about it with compassion, to to go at a person with <clears throat> with the gospel in hand. Um, to realize that unless the Holy Spirit intervenes or regenerates their hearts, they're in bondage to that. Mm-hmm. So would we have been, you know? Yeah. I saw a hand. Yeah. What do you want to say? No, it just, it just uh, humbles us, or not to, to read. You know, that is so, that makes the news. Hey, you know, yeah. it's news. It's a news item. LA, LA Times gave it no, space. no, um, commentary on it it's just hey this is just another world view they're all good you know yeah and it's yeah lee but in a just a little bit off that a little on different guys the mormons have all these statements they call the book of mormon truth because uh it revises the scripture but there's no archaeological proof for any of the things that are in there the DNA of the American Indian is proved as no relationship to any tribe of Israel. I mean, you can go through all that stuff, but that just doesn't, they, they just go, well, it's true. <laughs> I know. So it's I know. not any more inconsistent than that. Yeah. In fact, Mormonism is probably the most, probably without any rival, the most polytheistic religion in the world, yeah. even more so than Hinduism. It's, it's a, you're right, but it's completely, it's completely arbitrary. Yeah. It's just made up stuff. And yet they, they kind of bank their life on it. it. It's, it's very sad, but I want you to see how easy this is to do. This isn't, we've been using, you know, all these philosophical language and all that stuff. And I just don't want you to become lost in that and think that, boy, I could, this is too far removed from me. This is easy. And, and what you have to do, get in the habit of doing is when you read stories, when you read paper, the paper, when you talk to people, keep this framework in your head and evaluate. Teach yourself to discern, to listen. What I like to do is talk to people and hear them like the, um, the whole embrace you know, sexual freedom and yet oppose the war or oppose Donald Trump or whatever. Um, I love to see people use moral statements use moral language when they deny morality mm-hmm. they use terms like ought or ought not to mm-hmm. should should not you hear that even in this in this article read some should statements <clears throat> what I, I like to stop people and say should why why should they should they should do that they should do this they shouldn't do that what's the standard and now you're off and running with a critique of their worldview. A worldview that denies absolute standards and says everything's relative. If everything's relative, there is no should and should not. Just whatever pleases me. Really, Anton LaVey had it right all along, didn't he? Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Is that what you believe? Oh, no, I don't want to say that. And so here's where we come to like that, uh, uh, what do we call it, dualistic idealism, where there is a sense of They know there's a sense of love, justice, goodness, truth. Every, all these unbelievers that reject absolute standards and say there's nothing that's universal and absolute and invariant, no no laws up there. At the same time, they don't live that way. 
they do believe there are some absolutes. If they don't believe there are absolutes, if they say that, just try to take their wallet from them and take all, all their cash and their credit cards and say, thanks, I'm going on a spending spree. I'm glad you don't believe in absolute standards. Here's that leather back because I want the money. You know, because immediately they're going to cry foul. They don't live. They put locks on their doors just like you do. They don't believe in the inherent goodness of man. They don't believe in, in absolute standards. They don't believe in any of that stuff. They, don't, they say it, but they don't believe it. So that's what you have to press and reveal to them. They're, they're dualists. They do believe in some kind of an ideal of love and some kind of an ideal of justice is up there, but they have no idea how the ideal world and the material world interact. They have no idea, no idea how to unite the one and the many. It's the old philosophical problem that Plato had to battle with. The one and the many, how do we bring those together? If you're an unbeliever, you deny the existence of the only one who can bring that together, and that's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the source of all being, and he brings together the one and the many because he decreed it, and he spoke it into existence. Okay? We're out of time. Um, we'll come back to go through this in some brief detail, and then we'll come back to start to unpack it a little bit more. And, st and, we'll, and that's what we'll be doing. I'll, I'll be taking uh, these different categories, I'm starting to walk through, like, okay, let's talk about Hinduism. Okay, let's talk about Islam. I probably borrow from Lee quite a bit to, to educate us on Islam, you know. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through different religions and isms and schisms and cults and all that kind of stuff, and we'll, we'll talk about it and see how do we do an internal critique of all these different worldviews. And I think after a while you're going to say, okay, I'm thrown in the towel. I've had enough. I get it. Let's move on have worship services. And that's what I'm after. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, what we've been able to cover tonight. We thank you for what you've taught us again through uh, gifted teachers in the church and, and just ask that you continue to um, uh, take these truths and, and help us to uh, not only understand them, but that they would sink down into our hearts as deep convictions, that um, they'd be anchor points for our souls. And we pray that you'd uh, continue to wash over our mind with the pure truth of your word, um, renew our minds, transform our thinking, uh, and let that transform everything else in our lives, our conduct, our speech, our, our motivations, our will, our intentions, our desires. And we pray that um, our lives would please you and that you would use us as instruments, vessels for fit for the master's use. We love you and thank you for all the people that turned out tonight. Just ask that you would bring many more and, and uh, help us to, um, to learn, to be good evangelists, apologists, and, um, and to bring the, the light of the gospel to this dark world. We, we thank you for using that gospel, that very gospel, by your spirit to save us. Um, we're eternally grateful. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.